Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, are you ready for a little something other than a trial log? <laughs> if you've uh, been with us here in the salon for a while, you know that I've just finished podcasting 19 programs featuring trial logs that were held between Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake in 1989 and 90 at the Esalen Institute. Now I'm uh, finally going to get back to featuring a little wider variety of speakers before I return to the rest of the trialogues that were held in subsequent years. But before I introduce today's program, I, I have some sad news to pass on. In case you missed it, uh, Terrence McKenna's entire library, along with all of his personal papers, were destroyed in a fire on the 7th of February. You can uh, read Eric Davis's account of what happened on our salon's blog page, which you can find at www.psychedelicsalon.net. That's psychedelicsalon, all one word, .net. But basically what happened uh, was that Terrence's estate had donated his library and papers to the Esalen Institute, which, uh, of course, was the site of the trialogues that we just finished listening to. And as hard as it is for me to believe, Esalen stored all of this irreplaceable material in an old building that uh, also housed a sandwich shop that caught on fire. Apparently Esalen didn't uh, lose its own archives because they were stored elsewhere. It was the McKenna collection that was lost, you know, sort of uh, our tribe's own little version of the burning of the Library of Alexandria, I guess. Uh, I'll reserve my comments about the administration of Esalen and let you come up with your own thoughts about the carelessness with which they treated Terence's papers. What a shame. What a terrible shame. I'm sorry to start out with such a bummer of an announcement, but I thought I'd better just get that out of the way and move on. Better to end on an upbeat note, don't you think? And so, to get this program a little more upbeat, let's get right to today's guest speakers. The talks I'm going to play are from the Blanque Norte lectures at last year's Burning Man Festival, and they are by uh, Mark Pesci and Amanda Fielding. Mark and Amanda both, uh, both spoke on Friday as part of a real star-studded bill. You know, we began that afternoon with Dale Pendle talking about Horizon Anarchism, and uh, you can hear that presentation in our podcast number 55. Uh, Amanda was next on the program and was followed by Mark, and then after Mark came the art panel with Alex and Allison Gray, Martina Hoffman, Roberta Venosa, and uh, their talks were podcasts uh, number 51 and 52. Then came Eric Davis, his was podcast 49, and Daniel Pinchbeck, podcast 50. So you can see these are a little out of order, and uh, I hadn't planned on it being so long before podcasting Mark and Amanda's talks, but uh, I guess I just got a little carried away with all of those trialogues and kind of forgot where I was with the Palenque Norte series. And I have to admit that it, it feels good now to hear some more of the talks from Burning Man again. I'm going to play these two talks in the order in which they were given, so we'll begin with Amanda Fielding's presentation and follow it with, with Mark's. And I probably should mention that normally Amanda may be found giving talks in councils that are about as far removed from Burning Man as you can imagine. 
And uh, I guess I have to admit that I maybe pressured her a little bit to give a talk at the burn, but uh, my wife and I have been friends with Amanda and her brilliant husband, Jamie, for quite a long time, and I think she did it. this as more as a favor to me than anything. But as you'll hear in a minute, our, our tribe couldn't have a better friend than Amanda. She's devoted a significant portion of her life to lobbying and teaching government officials the truth about psychedelic medicines. And I'm happy to report that her work is finally taking hold in England and at the United Nations. In fact, both Ethan Nadelman and Sasha Shulgin referred to Amanda's recent successes in their Palenque Norte presentations the next day. So let's join Amanda Fielding in the big tent at Intheon Village during the 2006 Burning Man Festival and hear about her work with the Beckley Foundation which is a charitable trust that promotes the investigation of consciousness and its modulation from a multidisciplinary perspective. Thank you very much. Um, I founded an organization called the Beckley Foundation. Now, probably most of you hardly remember where England is, let alone have heard of the Beckley Foundation. So you might wonder what interest it is to you. But um, Britain is America's greatest ally in all the dreadful things it's doing at the moment, the war on terror and the war on drugs. And without Britain, uh, America would feel rather isolated. Tony Blair, the Prime Minister, has been called... Bushy's poodle, or Benchinquilly's dummy, and he's about to go. Now, the good news is that um, during the summer, July and August, the select committee of science and technology, which is the body which advises the government what to do, have um, sought out a paper saying that the current classification system for illegal drugs is not fit for purpose and should be replaced by a more scientifically based scale of harm. In light of the serious failings of the ABC classification system that has been identified, we urge the Home Secretary to honour his predecessor's commitment to review the current system and do so without further delay. Um, now, the ABC system puts uh, mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, in class A, in the same category as heroin and crack cocaine, as is LSD. And so the new scale will take into consideration, it will be classified on a scale of harms and benefits. And in this scale, it puts alcohol and tobacco high on the scale of harm, and cannabis relatively low, and LSD and ecstasy very low. Um, This move originated at the Beckley Foundation with the far-reaching talks I had with Professor Colin Blakemore, one of England's most highly regarded scientists, currently head of the Medical Research Council, which gives out all the grant money. 
Now, I've been involved in the movement to integrate the enhancement of consciousness into the fabric of society since the mid-60s. And I came to the conclusion that the best way forward was to get those in high positions to see the wisdom of what we are saying and so fight the cause for us. On the Scientific Advisory Board of the Beckley Foundation, I have most of the scientists who are in charge of advising the government, the Advisory Council of the Misuse of Drugs. By getting them on side, they do the work for one. By being a foundation, I've discovered that one stops being an individual with um, a slightly dubious um, past, and one becomes a very respectable body. And on two major occasions, the British government has come to me in order for the Beckley Foundation to review their, um, their papers on drug policy for the next 25 years. And so I never speak myself, but I speak through carefully spoken, carefully chosen experts who, after many conversations, come to have the similar um, attitude as myself, which the present drug policy just simply doesn't work. And indeed, it's the policy which is causing most of the damages. So that is a little bit of hope that what England does now is a tipping point for the United States to do later. The Beckley Foundation has, over the last um, five years, given a series of seminars which bring together um, the top scientists and policy makers from England, America, um, the United Nations, Europe, and um, they've now got a very good reputation. You can see um, them if you're interested on the website, BeckleyFoundation.org. And they, we also produce a series of um, papers, reports like this, which are heavily written by the experts in the field. And my particular interest is in, is in separating um, the psychedelics and marijuana from um, the rest of the drugs. Because in drug policy circuits, uh, people treat with great boredom the psychedelics because they cause no crime and it's just much easier to leave them in the most dangerous category and not to fiddle with them and not many people complain. So, um, in the Beckley Foundation, I've got a lot of experts to write on global drug policy and uh, their views are taken very seriously around the world. And all the while, I put in information about um, the psychedelics and marijuana. And now we have started two other bodies. One, an international society for drug policy analysts, which consists of the most important drug policy analysts in the world, headed by Peter Reuter, chaired by Peter Reuter. 
could get together and they again have very little interest in marijuana and psychedelics so I always push them on that front and then another body is the International Drug Policy Consortium which brings together over 40 countries and has a relatively big influence at meetings like the United Nations and the European Commission. Um, we had one big success in, as you know I'm sure, America, the United Nations is run by America and America was trying to block any aid going to countries which teach harm reduction or um, um, safe sex um, on the grounds that it looks as though it encourages those activities. And the Betsy Foundation started a movement with the European governments which indeed blocked that and so America didn't have its way and the United Nations dropped the idea and gives grants to those countries. Now, in 2008, the United Nations is going to have the review of the last 10 years of drug policy and when they set the agenda for the next 10 years. And as I'm sure you all know, they spend, spend multi-billions every year on, on eliminating drugs. And so we at the Beckley Foundation have decided to do some reports which will tell the truth because... Um, the United Nations reports don't tell the truth, they tell what the Americans want to hear. So we're doing one on, I'm, I'm chairing the select committee of choosing the people to do one on the Cannabis Commission, which will um, have the top scientists and policy experts on cannabis. And I feel it might also be interesting, but I haven't got this funded yet, to do one on psychedelics, because I feel... Um, the, mo the move, mood on psychedelics is beginning to change. At um, the last Beckley Foundation seminar, which was held at the House of Lords in London, um, we had the top of drug policy of the United Nations and of the EU. And um, Dave Nichols, who probably you know from America, gave a brilliant talk on psychedelics. And um, Bob Schuster, ex-director of NIDA, um, came out and said how much he valued psychedelics and marijuana in his own life. So this is quite a big surprise to these people. And the um, United Nations man, who's a very nice man, um, agreed with me that the regulation on psychedelics should be altered. So, basically, that, that's the drug policy side of the Beckley Foundation. The other side is the scientific research side. Um, now, I'm not a scientist, and nor am I a politician. I'm just a kind of um, uh, amateur. And, but I've found over the years, I've managed to get into the brain imaging units which I've been working at, because since psychedelics became illegal, um, brain sciences and um, techniques of measuring what's happening in the brain have expanded exponentially. And I keep feeling if only I had a month or two in a brain imaging unit and with the freedom to do what I wanted with a technician or two who knew how to work the buttons, 
one could discover a whole range of fascinating new facts um, to do with consciousness and expanded and enhanced space. So I build up relationship with scientists I can work with and with brain imaging units where one can work and then with um, changing policies so one can actually get the research done because at the moment it's not illegal to do research on controlled substances but no one does it because it's not good for um, grant funding or careers or anything else. So the Beckley Foundation, um, I instigate and get involved in scientific research and find the funding to do it. But um, at the moment it's mainly pilot funding. And the um, research that we have on board at the moment, the most exciting one maybe in the present company, will be the first research with LSD and human subjects. And we have now got the first three permissions with two more uh, rather minor ones to follow. And so we expect by the end of this year to be um, well on the way with that research. And hopefully having got that, having opened the door to scientific research on humans, which after all is about the only way one can do scientific research on consciousness, um, we will open the gates to the orchard where there will be immense um, ripe picking of fruit. And the other research I'm doing is on cannabis, um, what underlies, what neural correlates underlie the benefits of cannabis. All the research which has gone before is always on the harms of cannabis. Um, so this will be um, what changes in blood supply, what changes in um, electrical and magnetic activity and neurotransmitters happen when people experience the benefits of cannabis. And doing this research is someone called Professor Dave Nutt, who is an internationally acclaimed expert on addiction, um, particularly, and um, he's one of England's leading scientists, and again, he chairs the Advisory Council of the Misuse of Drugs. So, for years I've been saying to him, let's do some, suicide, uh, some LSD research, because that's crying out to be done, and there'll be lots of rich findings. And he always says to me, slowly, Amanda, slowly, slowly, let's start with cannabis. But he's already talking about the possibility of having a psychedelic, he's got an um, opiate and um, alcohol um, department in his university, and he suggested having a triangle with psychedelics as the third point. So I hope within a year or two to have that going. But on the other hand, I don't think really it matters where, so long as it's a respectable and, um, university, which has a good reputation, I, um, I'm open to use any university which has the equipment and the willingness to do the research. Um, another line of research that I'm doing, which is very, very fascinating, is high-level meditation. 
Um, I was lucky enough to get a very high-level meditator, someone called Sister Genti of the Brahma Kumaris Church, um, an Indian organization which is across the world. And she um, went into a, a MEG machine, which is the kind of latest toy in the brain imaging world. It's an enormous hairdryer filled with, um, I forget what, but it picks up things that the EEG cannot pick up and goes deeper into the brain. It's very good at placing um, where uh, stimulation comes from, magnetic changes. And um, with her, we had a paradigm of um, not meditating for 10 minutes, then meditating for 20 minutes, and then stop meditating for 10 minutes. And when she started meditating, several things happened um, which have never been seen before. One is her heartbeat went up from 60 to 90 beats per minute. She was sitting totally still. You can't move at all in the machine or it upsets it. So that kind of shows the change in blood circulation. And blood circulation is one of my pet subjects as the underlying change of consciousness. Um, she then, um, I don't know how much you know about the brain, but um, the... Um, visual and the motor sections, the motor somatic area of the brain, um, the um, electrical activity was desensitized, it was turned off. And the high level activity, the gamma, went vastly up, I mean more so than anyone had ever seen before, in the right cerebellum which again is an area no one has ever identified before. And during this phase, she was having uh, an identification with God and love and pure light. So it's like a snapshot of um, the inside of the brain of a mystical experience, which is very, very fascinating. And what my aim is to do different types of meditation masters of meditation do a high level Buddhist meditator a sadhu various other forms of meditation and see the similarities and the differences and then also do um, it with psychedelics because as probably most of us know here um, there's very strong tendency for the psychedelics to increase the mystical experience and by doing brain images, we can see the neural correlates and see the similarities and the differences. And one could say, now what's, what's the point of seeing the neural correlates? And I think that's a very great point, because I think if one can understand how um, these states of consciousness alter, it becomes much more difficult for governments to block it because everyone knows that the states uh, um, achieved through prayer or meditation are kind of good for the society. And if we can show that very similar states are achieved through the use of um, chemicals used in a certain way, it becomes very, very much more difficult to um, put them down. And also, if one can show um, that bliss and the how the different states between bliss and um, horror, panic, all those 
negative things. But what is the blood situation, what is the uh, neurotransmitter situation and the uh, neurotransmitters? We, we learn in our Know Thyself um, instruction of life and we can use it more usefully to, as a medicine to help people. And I don't look at psychoactive substances only as a medicine. I think they are also there for, um, as I'm sure all of you do, as the enhancement of one's personal life. And although we, in the present climate, need to talk of the medical benefits and also um, the spiritual benefits, there's also the benefits of um, being having all one's senses deeper and in my opinion to experience getting high means that you see a bigger view from higher up the mountain with a uh, greatly enlarged area of simultaneous association of the neurons so you get more far reaching associations and I feel that is what our kind of poor, neurotic, mad species needs more than anything else is to get a better view of both themselves and their world situation. And I feel the tool is to expand consciousness, whether by dancing, meditation, or psychoactive substances. We have a, an added treat for you today that we... Uh had, uh, I had somebody show up in the fly I didn't expect to see here, and uh, uh, those of you who already know Mark Pesci know you're in for a real treat, and Mark Pesci is going to uh, do a, a short presentation for us here. Uh, I'll say this, and I hope you'll give his website address. His website has so much information, uh, essays and sound, MP3s, you can spend days there. I have, and I guess the, the best way for me to introduce Mark is that I think he's, he has probably one of the most brilliant minds I've had the privilege of encountering on this planet. So please help me welcome Mark Pesci. Hey, folks. Um, this is probably the only time I will be able to give a lecture wearing a sarong. Don't you love Burning Man? Um, I've been spending my time, I would have been in here more, but we've been having a sort of alternate series of speakers over at the Oracle at Arrowhead, which is where I've been camped. Now, everyone in this room is an, is an Arrowhead member, right? Everyone in this room is an Arrowhead member, right? They need your money. They do God's work. And you all know it because how often do you go to that site? Oh, my God, what did I just take? I'm going to go to everyone to find out. Okay. Today's talk is actually going to be on the topic of the future because that's the topic of Burning Man this year, the future, hope, and fear. And so today's talk is called The Future of All. Now, the future of all, at least as far as scientists envision it, is a gradually approaching senescence, a slow senility. Everything expands and cools like nitrous from a whippet until finally all has ceased in its movement 
And that, of course, is perhaps a trillion years from now. So it's probably more appropriate today here at Palenque Norte to talk about other sorts of futures, which are just as all-consuming, but perhaps somewhat more immediate. And there's a word. It's on nearly everyone's lips. It's most often left unvoiced. And you know that word, and if you know me, you know damn well that I know that word too. Eschaton. The impending end of everything. I'm paying off. That's my sound effects guy. It's become the fixed star in this particular corner of culture that on 21 December 2012, the world comes to an end. Now, knowing your expiration date, that's a very big thing. It's a huge thing. It can be amazingly empowering, possibly. But this received knowledge, we must ask, did you receive it? Was it received by you personally? Or did you read it? Or did someone tell you? In other words, did it come in short via human communication? Because while we must trust communication, we must always distrust communication. Every word we hear is both truth and lie. And yet, so many are ready to believe. They're ready to take that leap of faith. They're ready to declare this sick, corrupt, shallow, unconscious mess that we politely call civilization a failed experiment. And because we are ready to believe, we are ready to receive the word of the eschaton. We receive it uncritically, we receive it unthinkingly, we receive it unconsciously. And this idea drives a huge segment of the community. It's become an day fixe. It's become an organizing principle. Now, as some of you may know, if you've heard one of my talks over at Erowid, I have nothing against knowing your expiration date. It can be quite important. It can drive you to dedication. It can drive you to getting your shit in gear. It can drive you to self-work. But I need to ask you all, look in your hearts and look at your culture and tell me if you see this happening. Does the knowledge that there's just a little bit more than six years left on the civilizational clock drive any individual that you have ever met anywhere? Have we seen anyone abandon their attachments and prepare themselves for this presumed inevitable end? You know the answer. I know the answer. That answer is no. Now, if you really believed it, things would be different. We have precedent for this. In this country, in the 1830s, a preacher by the name of Miller did a whole bunch of arithmetic and declared, lo and behold, I have calculated the date of the second coming, October 
October 12, 1843. And he began to preach around America, and he gathered up a band of followers, and they were called the Millerites, and the Moralites prayed, and they worshipped, and they lived in a sort of primitive apostolic communism and shared the goods and as the great day approached they sold their goods off one and one one by one and the great day approached and approached and it passed ah Miller said I'm sorry I've made a small mistake in my arithmetic 1844 I, I forgot that there's no zero AD and so his followers rejoiced he said this time for sure and they waited and they prayed and the blessed day approached and approached and it passed. And in American history, this is known by historians as the Great Disappointment. Now the Millerites had sold or given away everything they owned in preparation. And now poor and disappointed, they went forth. And some of them became what we know today as the Seventh-day Adventists. Others became smaller Protestant sects. And so on. And this pattern repeats. In 1914, the Jehovah's Witnesses preached the end of the world, which they saw coming at the beginning of the world, First World War. And then in Jonestown in 1978, and then Heaven's Gate in 1996. It's a recurring theme. The absence of an end forcing the hand of God. But actually, seriously, we have a lot less to worry about. If I saw anyone, anywhere, actually acting as though 2012 were some sort of inevitability, I would be worried. Instead, we carry on blindly, blandly, as though time stretched on indefinitely, without limit. And that's, in one sense, very reassuring, and in another, quite depressing. Now, I am not John the Baptist. I am not declaring the coming of the end. Nor, should I make clear, did Terence McKenna. He put his received wisdom out there. And he did not say, take and eat. What he said was, take this and test this. And I think his greatest disappointment was that so few people actually took that challenge up. Instead, his fans took up his story. They took it up hook, line, and sinker. They set their clocks and they waited, but they did nothing. And I think that that is this era's great disappointment. Now, what would we do if we really believed in our hearts that the eschaton was so close to hand? That knowing would transform us. It would transform our actions into perfection. It would transform our vision into utter clarity. It would transform our hearts into perfect love, perfect trust, and perfect understanding. And I do not see this. And yet we hope. And if only because of my own association with McKenna, people often look to me for that confirmation that it is coming, that it is true, even when it's not on the menu. 
Last year, I gave a talk at MindStates. I talked for 45, 50 minutes about social networks, organizing principles, new forms of communication, BitTorrent, beta distribution networks, and how this was all changing the way we communicate. And we opened the audience to questions, and the first question was about the I Ching and the end of time. I hadn't talked about that. But because I'm associated with McKenna and because people want to believe in this impending end of everything, despite any evidence they may or may not have of their own sense, uh, senses, they basically completely ignored everything I'd said in the hour before that and just wanted to focus on this one idea of theirs. Now, I'm making a public statement here today at Palenque Norte. I have grown weary of this. I have had enough of this. And fortunately, I'll have no more of this. For now, I will simply demore. Now, for my part, I have often equated the eschaton with the idea of technological singularity. That's what I want to talk about now. That's a term that was coined by science fiction author Werner Vinci in a lecture that he gave at NASA Ames back in 1993. I'm a friend of Werner's, and he and I have talked about technological singularity at great length, philosophical terms. And I remember in one of our first conversations, he suddenly just sort of stiffened up and said, you are a gradualist! As if it were some sort of slam. Did you see that? just walked in and walked out. Now, I am perfectly willing to admit that this may be true. And I do admit that I hold to a certain sort of technological determinism. I do believe that we will ascend into something that at this moment is ineffable and unknowable and utterly different. But will this happen in a twinkling of an eye? I think maybe in retrospect it will look that way after we have recognized that the singularity has occurred. Now, a lot of people talk about the technological singularity as tied up into the idea of the rise of artificial intelligence. And if you read all of the signs as you were coming into camp, you saw a long quote by Ray Kurzweil, whom I'll come to a little bit later, who's sort of the main proponent of this idea. I do not believe that there is such a thing as artificial intelligence. I don't believe that there's any sort of superhuman intelligence that will arise and overwhelm us all. It simply doesn't work that way. We don't have precedence in the natural world for that, or any historical or scientific record that it has ever happened. Instead, nature works by subsumption. When something new emerges, it subsumes the forms that came before it. The mitochondrion, which are in every cell in your body, are proof that this is the way that nature works. And so, what I would say is that there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. There is only intelligence, whether it's a vegetable or animal or mineral, all intelligence is one. So, back to Kurzweil. He's perhaps the most visible proponent of technological singularity. And for years, through his books, he's promoted the idea of another kind of eschaton, where the machine, intelligence, the machine intelligences multiply their capabilities so rapidly that they transcend all forms of human understanding. And he says that's the singularity. 
And it seems to me that as interesting as that idea sounds, and kind of rational as it sounds, it actually could only be possible if those machines were born in a universe entirely separate from us. But this is not that world. And we can draw, draw a line between ourselves and our machines no more than I can draw a line between myself and my eyeglasses. Yeah, pretty blurry. These are prosthetics, these machines, or perhaps looking the other way around, we are theirs. But neither can really exist without the other. So this rise of artificial intelligence, it's a misapprehension. The rise of intelligence, however, that seems historically inevitable. And so, with a great deal of skepticism, because I've known a lot about Chris Wiles' ideas, I sat through a lecture by him at a conference in Pisa just a few months ago that we were both speaking at. Now, when I spoke, I spoke about the rise of something that I'm calling hyperintelligence. You all know what hyperintelligence is, though you've never heard the word before because you've all used Wikipedia. All right? Wikipedia is the first identifiable artifact of the age of hyperintelligence. It is the collective and collective knowledge of a billion human minds. It's not artificial intelligence, it's just intelligence. And it's a whole lot more of it than we've ever had before. So, that's what I said. Then Kurzweil spoke, and I braced myself for a descent into bullshit. Into an exploration of ideas that I thought were, had no fundamental grounding in the reality of the world. And to my shock and my surprise, I found that Kurzweil had recanted. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, in Kurzweil's new future, we design the intelligences using the only guide we have at hand, our human brains. We can now design and simulate some of the simpler neural structures that we have in our heads. For example, the cerebellum, the back of your head, which controls all of your coordination. There are only four kinds of nerve cells in the, nerve, uh, in the cerebellum. And when you're born and grow, all your brain does, all your genes do, is just make lots and lots and lots of copies of those four kinds of cells. That's all it does. It doesn't do anything else. But once you're born and you're out there in the world, every movement you make, every interaction you have, causes those cells to connect together in different ways. And so you can start out with something that's very simple and completely undifferentiated, and then end up with someone who can dance, who can balance who can laugh, who can sing, because we grow into it through our interaction in the world. And now Kurzweil is saying, gee, this is what we're going to be teaching the computers how to do. This is how we're going to bootstrap the computers into intelligence. In other words, intelligence cannot be made. Intelligence can only be grown. And that means that in essence, the machines are no different than ourselves. We spend our lives, in particular our lives as young children, emerging into intelligence. Now this is known technically as constructivism. It was a field pioneered by a Swiss child psychologist named Jean Piaget. 
And Jean Piaget realized that all children are absolutely perfect scientists, that they go out into the world armed with hypotheses about the world and how it works, and they put these hypotheses to the test. And if they pass the test, they're subsumed and other hypotheses are built upon them. And if they fail, the hypotheses are altered and then put to the test again. And this is what all children do all the time. And if we're wise, this is what all grown-ups do all the time. So all our children do this all the time. And we're teaching our machines to do it as well. So what does this mean? This means that these are not our masters we're talking about. These are our children. And how could we not help but love our children? How could they not help but love us? Okay, yes, we may be the weird, cranky, opinionated elderly relatives. Absolutely, to these new beings. But we will be beloved because we are the weird, cranky, unusual relatives. And hopefully we will be respected for our wisdom because we've been around the block a bit and we can teach them things that they do not know themselves. That at least is the theory. But unlike the other theories about technological singularity, this is one that we can put to the test. And unlike the theories proposed enthusiastically believed in without really any supporting evidence about a shuddering, stuttering, catastrophic drop off the cataracts of history, this at least has observational evidence to support it. That seems to me to be the way the world actually works. And that, I believe, is the future alone. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's so kind of you to put that presentation together on such short notice. I want to thank Mark and Amanda again for giving those talks, and I'll put links to their websites and a picture or two from their presentations on the program notes that go along with this podcast. Again, you can find the program notes for this podcast at www.palenquenorte.org. And if you were in the audience that day, you'll also remember seeing Ann and Sasha Shulgin sitting up front listening with you. It probably was hot and dusty that day, because that's the way it always is on the playa, but I don't really remember it being uncomfortable. I can just remember uh, all the excitement in the air and the vibe in the tent. I guess you can probably tell that I'm already starting to get excited about going back to Burning Man again this year. And uh, for those of us who are counting, as of today, there are only 199 days left until the man burns. Okay, uh, now how do I segue out of here, huh? Well, gosh, I've got several emails I want to talk about, including one from Michael, whose very generous donation is paying for the bandwidth to deliver this and all the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon this month. So uh, thank you very much, Michael. And I do want to uh, comment on something you said in your email, along with several other emails I also want to comment on, but I'm going to have to do it next uh, program because, uh, gosh, today has just been one of those days that seem to come with a million interruptions. And uh, So if I'm going to have any hope at all of getting this podcast out yet today, I'd better cut it short for now and start doing all the back-end stuff needed to get this program online. 
I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us here in the salon today, and I look forward to being back here with you again next week. It's uh, it's really nice to know that you're out there, and believe me, you're not alone. There are a lot more of us on this path than even the most optimistic of us know. So uh, thanks again, of course, to Jacques Cordell and Wells, otherwise known as Chateau Hayuk, for letting us use your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.